0: Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor.
1: Hey everybody, and welcome to Talking Late Night. I'm your host, Max Cantor, and thank you for tuning in today to this awesome, awesome episode because I have a very cool guest. He used to be a staff writer for Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. He was also the head writer and the creative producer for the Detroit Pistons and eventually for the sports website Bleacher Report. And when it comes to stand-up, he's opened all over the country and he's opened for both Bo Burnham and Joel McHale. Today he's the managing editor of the Checkdown for the NFL, so please welcome to the show Mr. C.J. Toledano. Welcome to the show, C.J. Hey, thanks for having me, Max. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you, especially, you know, I got to be honest with you, I'm a huge sports fan, so when I I was reading your stuff and how you are, you know, you produce comedy for sports teams, I was like, this, it blew my mind, I didn't even know that was a path you could take.
0: Hey man, you're finding out it's a path about two years after I found out about it, so um, (laughs) it's a fairly new thing, and uh, who knows if it'll be a thing, and it's kind of up to me, I think.
1: Well, then that makes you, you're very important in this world. You're a very important player in sports comedy. Important,
0: yeah, important or alone at this
1: point. <laughs> well, you know what? You could be both. You could be alone and important. We'll give you yeah, both. Yeah, for sure. We'll give you both titles. Um, so to jump right into the show and to start talking a little bit about you, uh, growing up, what late night shows influenced you and in your comedy?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was uh, probably, to this day, one of the biggest Late Night with Conan O'Brien fans. Um, just, uh, you know, Conan himself and, and the, you know, his, the staff that he had it really influenced not only my comedy, but it ended up influencing uh, the people I hung out with in high school, in college, and then, you know, who are still, like, some of my best friends today.
1: Wow, so you were finding people who liked what you liked.
0: Exactly. Like, it was such weird, I mean, to me at the time, I thought it was such weird, specific uh, comedy and, like, this commitment to, uh, you know, the dumbest ideas. And it was on at 1230 at night when I thought none of my friends or people that I knew or my age could stay up and watch. I thought it was such, like, (laughs) that, uh, I I mean, I ended up loving it. And then when I found out other people liked it, I was like, I got to be friends with these people or these are the people who get me and, and, you know, who I want to eventually make comedy with.
1: So when you watched uh, Conan's show, were you watching it for, like, the sketches and the characters that he was doing? or Maybe for the monologue or the interviews? What attracted you to him?
0: I mean, I, it was, like, everything, you know, because I my first love was maybe, like, SNL, early 90s stuff, and, you know, you know that show and you know it based on, like, the sketches and the, and the cast members, but then I realized that, sort of, SNL had this whole world of of people that have worked for it or were the face of it. And then I learned that Conan was a writer, um, you know, for The Simpsons and SNL, and that he had his own talk show. And so I'd watch it because I thought he was so interesting and weird and funny. And then just as I started becoming more obsessed with it, you know, it'd be like dissecting the monologue jokes. It would be, you know, the the way he interacts with his guests, but, you know, and the sketches and the style of sketches. And so I was watching it all and always deconstructing it. And, you know, it was like, up until this day I'm always watching it and I'm both enjoying it but also like trying to pick it apart or you know just trying to be very calculated with you know how that show comes about and sort of his comedic persona
1: With your friends that were watching this did you guys ever try to like replicate what he was doing or maybe try to write your own bits for his show
0: I mean yeah that is exactly well, we did. Uh, it came down to just not only replicating the show, but it was also replicating their path in life. Like, I had moved to, once I found out that, like, you know, SNL writers and talk show writers came from either Ivy League schools or, you know, the second city in I.O. in Chicago, I moved to Chicago because I was doing stand up for uh, a, l- a couple years in Erie, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And I was like, you know, the next step to this, if I want to be a TV writer or work in comedy, is I got to you know, moved to Chicago, because I did not go to an Ivy League school. So, you know, I moved to Chicago, did Second City, did I.O., and I met all those people, um, you know, and I was doing stand-up too, and so I met all these people in the scene who had the same, you know, goal and interest, and we actually started our own talk show in Chicago together, um, replicating the process, replicating the show, and that was called The Late Live Show, and we actually did that in this small theater that was located in Second City.
1: Okay, so with, with the late live show, what was your role in it?
0: Yeah, so it was funny. I think you had Joe Quazala on as a guest before me, but we were it was you know it started with um, the original three, I guess, uh, who founded the, the group and the show. It was me, uh, Joewazolla and Andrew Smirker, and we all had we were all part of this message, this comedy message board uh, together back in the day called a specialthing.com. Which was like kind of this message board for um, alternative comedy, as you know, the word is sort of forbidden now. <laughs> but um, we ended up meeting, we met on that message board, talked, and then we all ended up moving to Chicago on the same time. And when Conan was uh, leaving NBC, we were like, man, we really want to do this. Like, we should, you know, we got inspired to create our own show. And we all sort of came up with the idea together. And because we were such good friends and too polite to each other, none of us really wanted to say that we wanted to host the show by ourselves. (laughs) And I think the arrangement that we made was that we would all sort of, you know, lead the writer's room that we would put together, uh, all sort of produce it, you know, take the head responsibilities of that. But Joe and I would co-host it together, which at the time we would say that me and him were both, you know, equally the main host. But it was really Joe was sort of the main host and I was the sidekick, sort of the Andy of the whole project.
1: Okay, so you were doing, well, you were playing a lot of roles then. You were writer, you were a performer, you were doing it all.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's sort of what you've got to do in any sort of early phase of being creative and eventually hoping to be creative for a living is that you don't have these budgets of these television shows or the resources that, you know, these giant productions have. So you kind of have to do everything in order to get this thing going. Like, you're doing it for free you're asking for favors, um, you know, you're asking for free venues or, you know, just any resource that you can tap into, you're, you're doing and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to ask everyone to hold many titles.
1: So now that you've gotten a taste of both the, the writing part and the performing part, do you like writing better or do you like the performing better?
0: You know, it's funny. I mean, I, I love writing and I love performing, um, but performing to me... You know, I quit doing stand-up, and, um, you know, I say quit, but who knows if I'll I get the itch to want to do it again but, and, like, perform again. Writing is just such a – it's not an easier thing, but it's a thing that you can take a lot more stabs at, and you can do it in your off time. Uh, you know, it's just – I think you get more chances to do it and get that feedback when you write, in my experience at least. Like, I, you know, writing is you can write a show, you can write um, a performance, you can, you know – tweet you can do all that so writing is just like a constant thing and so i really enjoy you know how that can be you can do that at any time but performing is like if once you perform and you you get that positive feedback there's nothing like it that's a drug Mm -hmm. um but on the flip side when you perform and it's terrible it's that immediate like you want to kill yourself
1: (laughs) Um,
0: so or you're performing in an awful venue or in some weird city that you how know, you got into, you know, a crowd of people who don't like you or, you know, so that can just really beat you up. And I kind of got beat up a little bit, I feel like, uh, to where writing was going a little bit better. So I started latching on it and sort of chasing some writing gigs.
1: So where were you doing these writing gigs?
0: And so from the late live show, um, and you can hear me, right? I'm not cutting out.
1: Yep, nope, you're all good.
0: Good. Uh, so... Yeah, so this was about 2009, 2010, while we were doing a talk show, um, and I was, like, finishing up college, and I was doing stand-up, and a manager from L.A. came into town, and he was, you know, like, oh, I like your stand-up, oh, what do you want to do, and I was like, you know, eventually I just want to work in comedy somehow, um, in, in talk shows, ideally, and so he was just like, if you ever come to town or move to town, let me know, and I ended up getting an, an internship, uh, at Conan here in L.A., um, and so I moved out to LA, and while interning, I was sort of, you know, hitting up that manager and being like, I would love to submit. And he was like, All oh, right, great, send me your samples. And while I was interning at Conan, I actually ended up um, putting together some samples for Fallon, and I got my first job while I was an intern at Conan um, to write for Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. Wow! So
1: that's awesome. It was like
0: the first, It was my, one of my first packets that got me a job, and that is like the that's the brightest. Story, I will tell you, and everything has been dark ever
1: since. <laughs> wow, wow, that is super cool, though. I mean to to have that manager come out there and really look at you, and it's it's very redeeming. I feel.
0: Yeah, and you know, uh, and I'm sure we can get into a little bit more, but it's almost like I felt, you know, in retrospect, it was maybe too early for redemption. You know, at that time, I, was, I had been doing comedy for maybe five, six years at that point, and I had so much more to learn, and to get a, a staff writing job, even to get that internship at Conan was like, I had so much more learning to do, but when you get a job, you sort of tell yourself, I'm done learning, or I know everything, because I'm writing on this big-time talk show.
1: Right. So, for you... What kept that motivation going? Because I, I can totally see, you know, and like you said, you get that internship at Conan, and you're like, boom, I did it, I'm in. And then you get that job for Fallon, and you're like, this is it, I've made it. So what kept you motivated and just wanting to learn more?
0: Are you saying after uh, the staff writing gig or just when I initially got that job?
1: When you got that job.
0: Yeah, I guess it's like, you know, you get there and... You know, it's a whole new field. It's a whole new, you know, set of goals. And your new set of goals are: you want to get jokes on the air, you want to get sketches on the air, you want to keep your job. Um, you know, I was 24 at the time, and I think I was one of the the youngest hires in late night since the Letterman days. Wow! Um, and it was just like, you know, you have your own you have your own self challenges, and you have your <laughs> What you're, you know, the feedback that you're getting from your bosses, and that's going to come down to whether or not you keep this job or not. So, it was me in that office from, you know, I was pulling like 16 to 20 hour days, just living. I mean, you hear those stories about people in 3 Rock or SNL, and, you know, you truly are. You can be there until you know two o'clock in the morning if you started at eight in the morning. Um, it's nuts. It's uh, so you're just there constantly because. No one tells you what the hours are, really. But you know you need to do as much as you can to keep that job because that is your dream job, and that's what you want to do with the rest of your life. Or what, that's what you think, you
1: know? Right. Wow. So to, to go back a little bit to this Conan internship, what were your responsibilities as an intern for a late-night talk show?
0: Yeah, so I started my first week. It's funny because I thought I was going in there to be the script intern. That was, you know, it was sort of loose-language Um, between the script coordinator or the intern coordinator when I was coming in. And I found out that once you get in there, uh, everyone is a general intern. And so that was sort of the first blow into like, oh, okay, I'm just an intern like everybody else, whatever. Um, (laughs) And then, oh, yeah, can you hear me?
1: Yeah, I can hear you.
0: Um, And then uh, it took about two weeks, and I finally earned the, the spot to be the script intern. And what I would do was I would deliver all the script updates to all the departments, everyone in those departments um, all day. And then also, you know, have the general intern responsibilities like get people lunch, Um, proofread stuff. I would look over the cue cards before the show um, and just make sure everything is right with the script and that everyone that worked in the script department had
1: what they needed. So during the show, during the actual taping, where do you hang out? Where were you stationed?
0: I would hang out in the control room. Um, you know, I thought that was the best place to sort of see how everything worked. Um, and also, I would always just let any writers or any of the producers know, like I was in the control room, because then it was pretty close to the stage. And if they needed anything from me, I was pretty accessible. And I was right—that was actually also right by some copy machines, just in case last-minute script changes happened.
1: Right. Wow. So do you have a favorite memory from watching all these shows? A memory that stands out?
0: Um, I w I wouldn't say a specific memory, but, you know, it was being able to talk to my idols and people who I admire to this day, like Brian Stack, who, you know, was a writer since the early late night days. Um, he would just be someone who I would assist and like get lunch and he would take time to like we would talk about our old Chicago days and he would tell me about old sketches that I loved growing up and it was just like getting to talk to the creator of these things that sort of shaped my comedy um I sort of recognized that it's such a uh an amazing you know thing that I got to do and so I would just always pick his brain and he was always so nice to spend you know an hour you know almost every week just to like talk to me about the stuff that I loved and that was just that was an incredible opportunity that I, I don't. Yeah, looking back on, I'm like, man, I don't know if I've had something like that in comedy in a you know a very long time.
1: So when you when you would talk with Brian, it was not just sharing funny stories. He would also give you advice and really help you find your voice. Would
0: you say? I would say with Brian, it was more just like kind of giving me a comedy education on you know uh, some of the people and lessons that he's sort of learned, but like. One of my, you know, teachers and mentors there was Dan Cronin as well, and he would really, like, I would give him submission packets. Like, I remember giving him, I I told him, hey, I got invited to submit for Fallon. Do you mind looking over my packet for me? And he would just give me straight-up notes. He would, like, write on the packet, like, tweak this, tweak that. And, yeah, so that was, like, that was maybe the greatest late-night writing school i could have gone to was interning for that
1: show wow so so with the conan uh internship did you ever produce material or you were really stuck with being a script intern
0: yeah you're really really just stuck to being a script intern because you know it then it gets into like the sort of the union rules and restrictions that if i was to like contribute anything like it would be you know you have to like pay that person Mm. um I think the rules have sort of gotten pretty strict about that in the last two decades.
1: Okay. I see. Um, did you ever get to interact with Conan? And if so, what was that like?
0: Yeah, it was, uh, it wasn't too closely, but you know, you'd walk by him or he would come into a room and he would just be, you know, fooling around with everyone or roasting people. Um, in, you know, a very loving way. Like these are people we've been, he's been working with for 20 years at that point. Right. Uh, but you know, and I would occasionally get his lunch um, if his assistant couldn't get it. But yeah, it was just like he was always walking around, and you know, he would say hello to everyone. Very, very nice guy. Um, but you're just like, this is the guy. This is another guy who, or the top of who, would probably shaped my comedy growing up.
1: Right. I mean, I can't even imagine. You know, you're you get to spend time and work in the same place as your. Comedy idol. That is that's a pretty big deal.
0: Huge deal, huge deal. Yeah. Again, it's like I don't think I've ever worked on anything since that has been been as you know as much of an honor as that was.
1: Uh, and where where's a place that Conan would eat for lunch?
0: And he would he would eat like everyone else. It's Subway or it's like the the commissary in the WB lot. Like <laughs> yeah, or salads from like the local salad place.
1: That, that, well, look at that They're, Celebrities are normal people just like us
0: I know, that's when you, you, know, you start to think Hey man, I eat as much junk food as this guy Maybe I can be <laughs> one of the funniest people on the planet
1: Exactly All it takes is a Subway sub or a salad to do it Exactly So after you went um, from Conan You ended up at Kimmel Or not Kimmel, uh, the other Jimmy You ended up at Fallon um, Right So talk to me about your first day what was the first day like? You walk in there, you're brand new. What happens?
0: Man, it was intimidating. Um, You know, I didn't sleep the night before. Kind of crazy. Um, He's like a friend of me and a bunch of other people. We started out at the same time in Chicago, but I had actually subletted Hannibal Burris' apartment uh, in New York because he was on tour. Um, And so that was kind of just like, everything was becoming very surreal. Like, that whole year was very surreal for me. Like, I was working at Conan, and then all of a sudden I was subletting my now-famous uh, acquaintance, Hannibal Burris's apartment, to work at Jimmy Fallon in 30 Rock. Like, that, that sentence is insane that I even said that. Um, but the first day was crazy, you know? You you, you walk in there, um, and there have been writers there who have been there for a year. I think that the show was going for a year at that point, a year and a half, maybe. Um, and you can't believe Any of this is happening, but then you also realize, man, I have a lot to work. uh, I have a lot of work to do. And so, you know, you're meeting people like the head writer at the time was 80 miles and he was a, you know, a comedy idol of mine who I looked up to, but then he was my boss. And, um, you know, so you want to impress that guy. And so I was a nervous wreck. I remember I was just sweating and eating constantly while I was (laughs) there. (laughs) Wow. Um, And I remember, yeah, you're just like, you're at the, you know, we went to the writer's room, um, and you're around this big conference table, and you get right into it. You're like, here are the, you know, here are the stories of the day. Um, what do we got for this stuff? Like, what are some sketch pitches that we can turn around in the next few hours? Um, or do we have you know, these reoccur- reoccurring sketches that we're going to do? It was just you know, you're thrown into it, and you, you're expected to learn, and you're expected to sort of get stuff on the air as fast as possible. So
1: I've, I've I've heard, and I mean, you're the first person that I've actually spoken with who's gotten to write for a late-night talk show, um, but I've heard that if you work for a late-night talk show, you have to write just a ton of jokes every single day for the monologue. Is that true?
0: Yeah, so I wasn't a monologue writer at the time. I would help out with the monologue here and there at Fallon, but um, I remember their quota during that time being, Eighty to hundred jokes a day. Oh, um, and it would be split up between two to three different, you know, uh, blocks during the day. But uh, yeah, and, and Fallon, I think at the time was probably the most um, the quote of being the biggest out of any of the talk shows at the time.
1: That that that's hard to do. I mean, a hundred jokes hey. in a day.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I I mean, uh, some of my close friends were were monologue writers on that show, and I could see the anxiety on their face from a day-to-day basis it's almost like you bring it up now and they have a little bit of ptsd from it
1: (laughs) i'm sure i i mean it's hard to write one joke you know just sitting down to write one thing i can't even imagine to do a hundred that's 500 jokes a week
0: yeah it's pretty crazy i mean that's why you know i think in a very general uh you know piece of advice that i sort of learned was you know writing is a muscle and so While that sounds crazy when you first get in there, you just become a machine and you sort of start learning these cadences or these joke formulas that sort of repeat on a daily basis to, you know, a story can be different, but it might have the same joke formula or cadence that you just start churning these out at a rapid pace.
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. So you develop, you know, your, your tone, you develop the style and then you just crank them out.
0: Yeah, you crank them out, and then you just keep taking passes at them until they're, you know, passable to give to, you know, your boss to hand to Jimmy.
1: Right. Okay. Um, so when, also when it comes to late night, uh, when you're writing for it, are you watching other late night shows to,
0: like, make sure you don't
1: steal or make sure you don't copy, or are you solely focused on what Fallon is doing?
0: Uh, you know, I was <laughs> solely focused on what Fallon was doing, but actually the funny, funny you say that is because at Conan... Uh, one of my responsibilities as a script intern was to outline other um, other hosts' monologues and, and sort of just like uh, comedy that they've done to make sure that we weren't repeating any comedy. So while I was at Conan, I was watching a lot of Kimmel and Ferguson and sort of telling or just like doing these show breakdowns of what, what sketches and jokes they were doing so that uh, Conan wouldn't repeat any.
1: Okay, Oh, that, that's, very, that's very interesting. Uh, you don't even yeah. think about that happening behind the scenes, but I bet it's happening all the time.
0: Yeah, actually a moment that I'm just remembering now when I was a script intern at Conan was that I remember seeing in the, one of the final monologue sheets um, for the day, like minutes before uh, the show was going to happen. There was a joke that I think Kimmel had done that Conan was almost going to do and then I had told my boss, who then told uh, her boss, and they 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 cut that joke at the last minute.
1: You look, you're a hero.
0: I know. I was the hero. <laughs> I remember <laughs> being really proud of that. Wow.
1: I, that that's also. I mean, that's high pressure too. Because if they come out and you know Conan comes out and does that joke, and people are like, "Oh, look, Conan took Jimmy Kimmel's joke." That falls on you, I guess, for not checking it. So that's high stakes.
0: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I didn't you know, I was just always just trying to do everything I could. I mean, I was so obsessed that like, I would rarely make mistakes. And that. like, that's me bragging a little bit, but I was just so obsessed with every little minor detail that I, I'm not surprised that nothing got by me.
1: Right. It's, ah, you're a hero. I'll tell you, you are just <laughs> a true hero. So, uh, back, back with your time at Jimmy Fallon. Um, because you're writing so much, what exactly were you writing for the show? Because you said you weren't a monologue writer.
0: Yeah, so I was writing sketches, and at the time, I think that, you know, they were just finding sort of their sketch voice um, for the show. And so I would do a lot of the desk piece joke writings, like the thank you notes. That's where I, I sort of had a lot of my jokes make it to air. Um, I don't know if they still do this desk piece anymore, but it's called Pros and Cons. And so I sort of became... Really good at writing, um, you know, desk piece jokes. But then I would also produce these, you know, sort of what they do now, these game show type sketches. Um, I hate to call them in sketches because they're not really sketches, but like, you know, they had this thing called spit takes, mm-hmm. uh, where contestants had to, you know, read these sort of, you know, corny jokes and make their friends laugh. Um, yeah, I have a real difficulty explaining what the sketch comedy was there at the time. Uh, not a knock on them, but it was just different. It wasn't like the, sketch, the sketches that I liked and I learned uh, how to write when I was watching Late Night with Colonel O'Brien.
1: Mm. So when you are writing sketches, are you writing sketches for that day? Or do you write sketches and you're like, okay, we'll, we'll come back to this or this is a good sketch, but we'll use it for this guest you know, in two weeks?
0: Yeah, I mean, we well, if, like, a big guest is coming um, to the show and we know that two or three weeks in advance, we're pitching that in that moment. And then, you know, it might be a bigger, you know, it might be a pre tape segment. And so they need to, like, get the resources in line and the production schedule to shoot with, you know, a Beyonce or someone like that. And mm-hmm. it just all depended on what the news story was or what, what guest was going to be on the show. So you're writing, you know, but if you pitch something on the day of, that is like amazing and would kill, and like everyone is really excited about it. Then you're going to turn that around in that day. You're going to produce that in that day for that show that night.
1: Okay, I see what you're saying. for For this show, um, for for Jimmy Fallon, because you had a different role, um, a more uh, important role, higher up role. Where did you watch the shows?
0: Uh, well, I found I watched it in my office.
1: Oh, okay. So you watched it on a screen.
0: Yeah, we all had, we had uh, monitors in our TV, you know, TVs in our offices where we can actually watch the stage at all times. Oh, okay. So, but then it would show the broadcast feed um, while the show was dating.
1: Did you like that more or less than being able to sit in the control room?
0: Um, you know, I'm, I liked it less. Uh, but also, yeah, just when you're a writer on the show and you're being paid by the show, Stress levels are at an all-time high.
1: Yeah, I'm sure.
0: Uh, yeah, I was enjoying it less because I didn't get to see everything. I was enjoying it less because I always felt like my job was on the line.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, when you know that your joke is in the script and it's coming up, you're just sitting there. And what what are you thinking? What are you thinking when you know it's coming?
0: God, yeah, I mean, you're thinking, I hope uh, I hope the, the crowd laughs. I hope this does well.
1: <laughs> right. So, So tell me the two... Uh, experiences that you felt, you know, when a joke of yours killed and when a joke of yours maybe didn't kill as much.
0: Yeah, and it's always the joke that you don't think is that funny is the one that kills and then the one that bombs is the one that you are like, hey, everyone, watch the show tonight and see my joke. <laughs> so, but I, one funny story, my first ever joke that I got on the air um, was this joke. Uh and I remember it, I remember seeing the final sort of joke sheet or the script, and I thought that one, one of my jokes was going to be on the air. I remember just, like, sitting in my office. You know, he's about to deliver it, and he delivers it. And then he starts to riff on it. And he riffed on it for so long that it actually bumps the sketch that was after that, that desk piece <laughs> off that show. Whoa. And... It was incredible. That was my first ever joke ever. And then I remember going up to Jimmy after the show and being like, hey, that was my first joke that you read, you know, this this Rick thing. Um, and he goes, oh, my God, that's so amazing. It killed. Like, you should write a sketch about this character. Um, you know, I'm being real general, real vague about it, but it was this uh, character – or, like, the joke was – I don't know if you're familiar with the pros and cons death piece, but it's like, um, you know, the – the theme of the, the desk piece was uh, your graduation day. So you read a pro, and then the con of that pro. So it's like pro, um, your whole family is going to your graduation. And then the con was, and I'm going to butcher this joke <laughs> that I wrote seven years ago, but the, I think the joke or the con was that everyone in your whole family now also includes your mom's new boyfriend, Rick.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And so then he read that, and it got a huge laugh. And then he started um, doing this character Rick, and he start and him and Higgins start improvising back and forth on this character, and they ended up improvising for like ten minutes on the character, and that's what bumped the next sketch.
1: Wow, it's
0: pretty wild. That
1: that must be just an unbelievable feeling, though. I mean, you're sitting in the office, you're hoping it goes well, and then it, like, explodes to this amazing thing. I can't even imagine.
0: Yeah, I mean, but then, I mean, this is the thing that I had to realize was that, you know, you really can't, you can't go up to, like, the head writer or the person who is sort of responsible for you uh, or for making the call and whether you get to keep your job or not. You can't go to me like, that was my joke, that was my joke, like, you know, I'm worth keeping around.
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> so, but that was like the best it could have ever gone. Like in my first day, or that was maybe like a week into me working there. Um, yeah, that, that being my first joke, it was such a surreal experience for sure.
1: And that's cool to hear too, that Jimmy Fallon was very approachable, that you could go up to him and he seemed like a cool guy. Would Would you say that?
0: Yeah, um, you know, he was, he was definitely a, a cool guy, very funny, but he was also a very busy guy. Like, he's the face of this show. He's also producing, he's also picking and deciding so much on it that, you know, he was also well protected in that, you know, writers, young writers like me or young staffers on the show weren't bothering him and taking up valuable time.
1: Oh, so, so what was your experience when it comes to interacting with Conan versus interacting with Fallon? What would you say the major difference was?
0: The major difference, I think, was that Jimmy was still new when he was doing this show. And he, you know, there's a lot of pressure on him uh, to make sure this show was good and that it would continue that. You can sort of read the pressure on his face um, as opposed to Conan, who knew he sort of was going to be doing this for as long as he wanted to.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, Conan knows they're not getting rid of him when, I guess, Fallon, when you're so new, you're still hoping that the network isn't going to remove you as a host.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So after your, your time at, you know, the late night with Jimmy Fallon, where was your next step in your comedy career?
0: Well, I mean, to be very candid, um, you know, I didn't get renewed on the show um, after my contract. And so I had no, I was young still. I was, you know, I mean, I'm young now, uh, but I just had no idea what to do next. And that's what I meant about, you know, getting redemption early. It t- I took a major shot to my confidence, and I didn't know one word. I was like, I was like Sh- will I get another job on another talk show, um, or should I keep doing stand-up? And so I was sort of in this weird, like, purgatory of what I was going to do next. And I remember I was going to move back to L.A., Um, but before moving back to LA, I went to go hang out in Chicago and I met a girl who I ended up dating and I ended up staying in Chicago for two more years just doing stand-up. Yeah, doing stand-up. And I also had stints writing at the Onion and writing for some other freelance gigs.
1: Okay. So when you're writing, you know, for your stand-up and you're writing for the Onion, is there a point where you're, where you're just like, I'm done with performing. I'm more of a writer.
0: I, you know, it just it wasn't. You weren't sure. Like you were just gonna do everything. Like I was um, while I was in Chicago, I was still fortunate to be submitting for other talk shows um, that were coming on the air. And man, at the time, so many talk shows were being greenlit, and I think you know there was this crazy boom of just giving up-and-coming comics talk shows. And so I was just submitting and also doing stand-up. And during that time, I was starting to open for Bo Burnham. Um, I was opening for Joel McHale. And so I was like, man, maybe I should be a stand-up. But, you know, I always knew in my head, too, and this is sort of me being scared of my Asian parents, was that (laughs) just you got to do whatever is going to pay you as well and, like, take care of you and make sure you can pay your bills. I always knew TV writing gigs would be a more steady income than... You know, uh, doing like stand up, like writing for talk shows would be.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So I have to ask. (laughs)
1: uh, when it comes when it comes to you being an opener for a, a well known stand up comedian like like we mentioned Bo Burnham and Joel McHale and I, and I don't want to be blunt here and I but
0: I, sure, I be I, blunt as be as blunt as you want I will tell you everything
1: I genuinely want to know of what it's like to walk out on the stage where nobody has shown up to see you.
0: That is uh, both it, there's pros and cons to it. <laughs> I. Uh, you know, it, there's a lot of factors involved. One is, I think when I was opening up for Bo Burnham, that crowd was a similar crowd to who would enjoy my jokes and why I sort of got, you know, um, sort of the reason why I was this regular opener is because it was sort of a younger, college crowd. And I was, you know, I was coming out of college then, too, and sort of our sensibilities matched up. And because it was like, oh, younger crowds are more you know, into it. They're going to listen more. Um, These are sort of my people. And I loved it. And you only have to do, you know, 10 to 20 minutes and you can get right off. And so I felt like I was just like killing and then I just felt like a celebrity and then I brought on Bo Burnham. So it was like, I was nervous for maybe the first, you know, one or two shows. And then it was like, this is so much fun. So I had a lot of fun doing that and being his opener. And, Joe McHale too was sort of a younger crowd, and um, yeah, I just was re- really fortunate to open up for some comedians who had these fan ba- these fan bases who sort of matched up with my sensibility as well.
1: Well, you, just so you know, um, I've reached out. Uh, they'll uh, they may never respond. I don't know, but I've reached out to both Bo Burnham and Joel McHale, inviting them to be on this show on Talking Late Night. So if they ever come on, I will be sure to To say that they picked a good a good uh warm up for their act,
0: <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah, I I have a few friends who went on to open for them, and uh, yeah, it's been nothing but good experiences with uh, with those particular comedians. Because sometimes those games can be just a nightmare.
1: Right. I, well, I'm sure. I mean, if you're if you're opening for someone who's like a jerk and doesn't care about you, I'm sure it's terrible. But these, both of them seem like they're genuinely nice guys and that they care about the people they're around. So I'm glad you had a good experience with them.
0: For sure, for sure. Nothing but nice things to say.
1: Now, tell me, how did you get involved uh, with the Detroit Pistons? Because I read that and I was like, huh, that's an that's a interesting thing to have on your LinkedIn page. So tell me, uh, how did you get involved with, with the Pistons?
0: Yeah, I mean, again, my my career has been this weird, (laughs) it's taken some weird turns. And so I had moved to LA and I was trying to get TV writing jobs and it was just dry. I wasn't getting anything. Um, I fired my manager and agent. Stand up was hard because I'd moved to a new city. Like, you know, I was living in Chicago and I was, you know, one of the more popular comedians, like, just doing all the shows that I wanted a big comedian would come to the West, I would open for them. And was, I felt like it was hot shit. And then the mood. like, my peers were celebrities. Not like the people who I was trying to fight for bookings were other celebrities. So like mm-hmm. my booking, I wasn't getting booked in town at all. And so I sort of took a, I, I wasn't, you know, doing standard that much and TV writing wasn't working. And I got hired to write for a Korean pop talk show for a year and a half. Where I was a head writer, um, and I ended up getting to do a lot of directing and producing, and that was like amazing. And so that lasted for like a year and a half, and then I had no job. Um, and <laughs> I remember, you know, and I, I was such—I've been a sports fan my whole life. Like my, one of my first dreams was to play in the NBA. Obviously, I, I learned, you know, when I stopped growing at five ten and being Filipino, I was like, I'm not going <laughs> to yeah. play in the NBA. But I followed basketball so closely, um, and there was this weird, like, six months while I was out in L.A. where my girlfriend had broken up with me. Um, one of my best friends passed away, uh, and stand-up, my job, it was non-existent. So I was like, you know what? I could either become really fat and hate myself, like, I felt this, this uh, sort of this road, this fork in the road. I could either really just destroy my body and my my mental health, or just go on this crazy kick where I'm just like working out, playing basketball, using all my free time to be proactive, um, and sort of and just like watch basketball uh, and you know just do all these things the opposite of what a standup comedian would do, which is stay out late and drink and whatever. And I started playing a lot of basketball. And I started just obsessing like, over sports again. And I started this comedian basketball game every Saturday out here. That ended up getting this weird following and these this weird invite list where it was like all these producers and writers. Um, and this one producer, her name was Betsy Kosh, started to come. And she was a producer about Funny or Die. And this um, weird project came across her desk where the Detroit Pistons were interested in integrating a creative and comedic team into their uh, sort of, I guess, marketing um, to, like, be operating for a full NBA season. And she, knowing, you know, we, we became friends at that game, she, like, tasked me with coming up with a model for this. And they hired me and, you know, flew me out there, and I lived there for a full season where I just made content for the Detroit Pistons crazy sorry that was like a long line up to that but yeah it was uh yeah it was uh, a weird time weird fun
1: time so when when they hire you to to work with the detroit pistons do you know what type of comedy you can produce for an nba team i mean what how did you start brainstorming ideas
0: so yeah when i got there i sort of started to notice the shift in where content was doing well now sort of you know in twitter and instagram more extremely just like short form pieces of content and so i was like you know i had that mind that uh mindset going in and we started doing some pieces that sort of got a lot of traction on twitter and instagram and that was sort of ahead of the curve and what a lot of uh sports teams were doing at the time
1: okay were, were you a pistons fan when they hired you or were you rooting for another nba team
0: no man. Yeah, I was the complete opposite. I was a. I've been a Bulls fan since I was a kid. Obviously, from like Jordan in the nineties. Um, I, I've been a diehard Bulls fan forever, and so you know the Pistons were their rival for such a long time. And, you know, still are kind of considered that as well to this day.
1: So, was that hard for you to become like a kind of Pistons fan?
0: No, I mean I was just so fortunate and so grateful to be uh, working for an NBA team that I quickly became one of their biggest fans. Oh. Um, you know, it's sort of like, you know, when you're a kid, you know, you ask Isaiah Thomas, you know, to use him as an example, the older, the, the Pistons Isaiah Thomas said, you know, he grew up in Chicago and I'm sure he was a bold fan when he was a kid, but he just wanted to play in the NBA. So he would have played for any team who was going to draft him.
1: Right. So, yeah, so it's similar so to that. Yeah. From there, how did you get involved at Bleacher Report?
0: So, yeah, I was, uh, from there, I was sort of, like, uh, sort of getting tired of living in Detroit. I had none of my friends there. Um, I was going back to L.A. to visit a lot, and I was planning on moving back to L.A., and I figured, you know what, I'll just get back into comedy writing or, you know, try to get a a job in TV, Um, but Bleacher Report, fortunately, found some of my work and were fans of it that they put on a the table they're like, hey, what if you came to uh New York or moved to New York and, you know, sort of did what you did for the Pistons but for all sports? And, you know, I was already a fan of their their company and, and you know, their channels already that it was a no brainer and I moved there right after that Pistons gig.
1: So what are some notable things that you've produced uh for Bleacher Report?
0: Yeah, so while I was there I um was the head writer for their football cartoon called Gridiron Heights, uh, which is in uh, its second season now written by uh, some of my best friends over there, the Malamets, who also write Game of Zones. Um, and then I also would just – if you look at their Instagram account now, anytime there's like a big game um, or a big, you know, sports storyline, I would come up with the creative things that you would see uh, on their feed. So it's like if there's a crazy highlight, like a crazy LeBron dunk, it would be – up to me to create the idea, of, oh, you know, we'll put the ball on fire or we'll put their, you know, rockets coming out of their shoes, um, which are very basic examples of what I did. But anytime you would see any creative content on the Instagram or Twitter or Facebook feed, that was, you know, I was uh, leading up the group who would do that stuff.
1: Okay. And so from from that Bleacher Report job, that's how you ended up at the NFL?
0: Yeah, so I just wanted to be back here in LA. I just uh, I was living on the East Coast my whole life, and New York life is sort of pretty daunting and uh, just too busy. And my girlfriend lives out here, all my friends live out here, and I decided to just come out to LA and see what other opportunities I, I had out here. And uh, luckily, the NFL, you know, launched this um, this program called the Checkdown, which I'm doing. And uh, yeah, it's sort of just Bleacher Report, but you know, focused solely on football.
1: Okay, I, well, that's perfect because I was going to ask you to describe what the checkdown was for people who don't know what it is.
0: Yeah, so the checkdown is it's it's essentially it's football for the millennial generation. It's you know it's cool highlights. It's a lot of the the cool stuff of football outside of the numbers and the stats and the you know the wins and losses and the crazy like old school thinking. It's a lot of just like just showing the play or you know, doing animated stuff or, um, you know, just it's all the cool stuff that, you know, House the Highlights, it's the cool moments that happen, the quirky stuff that happens on the sidelines or in the crowd. It's uh, an account solely focused on that stuff.
1: So is it a lot focused on comedy or it's really just a fun place to check out football?
0: You know, it's a lot of comedy. It's in a lot of uh, comedy infused in that. Um, it's a lot of, like, finding those moments that are pretty organically funny um, and just keeping a consistent voice. You know, I, what I think I found some success in, the, in these sort of uh, accounts is that I, I imagine the checkdown as like a host. Say the checkdown is like Jimmy Fallon and it's then finding the clips or writing and coming up with the content that fits that host's voice mm. um, and just trying to do something like that on a daily basis.
1: Okay. Well, I can, I can tell you now that uh, I'm a very big Miami Dolphins fan, so I'm sure you guys had plenty of jokes to make about this year for us.
0: Right, right, right. I mean, we try to do the thing of, you know, a lot of sports accounts, they try to make a lot of jokes tearing down teams, but, um, you know, I think there's a lot to celebrate in sports, and so we try to tend to lean on the positive side. Ah. Um but you know, there's a lot of cool stuff. Like Jarvis Landry is a is like a a really fun personality, and so we highlighted a lot of his uh, post game speeches and a lot of his cool plays, one handed catches and stuff like that. Mm-hmm.
1: So I mean,
0: there's there's something for you on the on, I think.
1: Yeah, there for sure. I mean, yep, Jarvis Landry is my my favorite player on the Dolphins, and uh, this past year I got to go down to Miami to their training camp. And I got to meet him while signing autographs, and I was about to pass out. It was a big deal, big deal in my life. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure.
1: So, CJ, um, now that you're at the NFL, for you, what do you think your next step in your career is?
0: Um, Well, you know, I want to spend some time on this project and, and see where it goes and, and try to— you know, exhaust myself trying to grow this account uh, for the NFL and see what we can do with cool, experimental, uh, or, you know, um, you know, just kind of just create a space for the NFL. Because uh, I feel like the NBA, Twitter, and social media is at an all-time high right now, and I really want to do that for the NFL, and I think the checkdown is a great opportunity for that. Um, in the long term, I think I want to, you know, go off and, You know, maybe write and direct the next fan line, you know, and I think that's like the perfect blend of my sports and comedy background. I think that would be like the dream project to be like this writer, director of the Mighty Ducks or like cool Nike commercials. I think that is a way that's kind of just like the perfect mixture of all my um, hobbies growing up and what I've sort of been dabbling in in the last like 12, 15 years.
1: Yeah, for sure. And in addition to, uh, I know, like we've been talking about, you write for the check down. And earlier you said you are out of stand up. Uh, so, in addition to writing, do you perform at all anywhere?
0: Well, so uh, <laughs> it's funny, my girlfriend, she um, <clears throat> is a comedian who I met eight years ago. And, uh, you know, we were just friends, and then we started dating in the last year. And so, when I got out of stand-up, I was like, I'm not going to do stand-up anymore. I'm not going to go to shows anymore. But she is a, a very successful comedian, and so now I, I'm at shows more than ever. And I'm sort of, you know, I, I watch shows, and I'm like, man, I used to be good at that. I want to do that again. So, I'm actually, I booked a few shows for January to get my feet wet again and see what uh, momentum I can get brewing, and we'll see, we'll see how it goes. I'm not... I'm not doubling down on it just yet, but, um, yeah, stand-up is fun. It's just fun to go out there and perform, and, it's, uh, again, it's a, it's a different uh, way to just sharpen your your comedic sensibilities and and just keep in touch with what's funny and what's, uh, what's
1: good. Yeah, for absolutely, yeah. for sure. Um, and uh, I have one last question. For you, CJ, it's a question sure. that I ask all my guests, actually. So every single guest is asked this question at the very end. And the question is, if you were to give one piece of advice to somebody who eventually wants to be in your shoes, what piece of advice would you give?
0: Um, I think it's just be consistent, you know, just do something every day, uh, you know, big or little that is furthering you to reaching your goal. Um, Whether, you know, and that can be, you can be lazy and just watch a comedy movie and sort of just kind of look at it and go, why is this good? Or, you know, the next day, then go do stand-up or write, you know, a piece of comedy, whether that's a script or one or two tweets. You know, it's just like do something every day that is getting you closer to that goal in comedy that you have.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: It'll, it'll, it'll culminate in something. Something will happen. You, you, you'll start to find successes in one of those things that you're doing, and then you can just start doing that one thing over and over and over again until that's like your calling card and you're finally working in comedy in some way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. if C, uh, CJ, if people want to find you or see you perform stand-up coming, uh, coming up soon, where are some places they can find you and check you out?
0: Just, uh, yeah, just follow me on Twitter, um, at CJ Toledano, and most everything that I ever do is, you know, it's me primarily writing jokes here and there on there, and then, um, you know, reposting comedy stuff or or cool sports stuff that I'm working on, Um, and if I ever do stand-up again, well, I'm doing stand-up now, uh, this month, uh, you'll probably see me plugging those shows on there.
1: Cool. Well, yeah, definitely for sure. Be sure to check out CJ at his Twitter. And once again, CJ, thank you for being on the show. I love talking to you.
0: Absolutely, man. Good luck in everything that you do. And um, yeah, thanks for talking to me and, and taking interest in uh, my weird ass
1: career. <laughs> uh, definitely. But uh, you know what? It was a cool one. It was an interesting journey, but it was very cool because in a, in a way it like all came together and all makes sense. Yeah,
0: no, that's, uh, whenever someone asked me how I got to one thing or the other, I'm like, do
1: you have an hour of time for
0: me to explain to you and, and connect these all together? Yeah, but, and, because uh, we're
1: here. It was, yeah, it was definitely cool to be able to see, you know, what you do now for the check down related back to what you do or what you did with Fallon and that connected to Conan, which connected, you know, like it just went on and on. So it was very cool to tie all those pieces together to one big puzzle of your life.
0: Awesome, man. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for
1: having me. Yep, thank you. And to anybody who's listening, remember, you can visit us at our website at www.talkinglatenight.com. You can find us on Facebook at Talking Late Night, and you can also follow us and download our shows on iTunes, where you can rate and leave us a review. So thanks again to CJ for being on the show. Thanks to you for listening, and we will see you next time.
0: (laughs) Uh-huh. <laughs>